This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you're about to hear is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with professionals. This episode contains mature content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Please be advised. Welcome to In the Labyrinth of Death, the podcast where we explore the choices people make in disasters and whether those choices keep them alive. I'm Finn. And I'm Marina. This week, we're going to be talking about tsunamis. Yep. Honestly, tsunamis are one of my like kind of somewhat irrational fears. So where we live, we're pretty far inland on the east coast of the U.S., but I think about tsunamis every single time we go to the beach, like the Bahamas or even the Outer Banks. I just think about the logistical nightmare that it would be if we were asleep in the Outer Banks and our phone pings with a tsunami alert. Like, what do you do in that circumstance? We'd have to, in the middle of the night after waking up, wrangle the dogs and our three-year-old, and then what? Hope we get off the island faster than everybody else so we don't get stuck in traffic as we try to flee? Or should we try to get to the roof of the house with something that could float? Because I don't think we could get past the bridge to the mainland in time. I think we're actually probably pretty safe, relatively speaking, in the Outer Banks, but also I don't think being in a car when a tsunami hits us is going to be a great idea, especially when you have two dogs and a baby. Yeah, it's probably not a good idea. I don't honestly know what we would do. I still bring the dog and the toddler life jacket every time, just in case. Alright, let's get started. I have a fairly recent tsunami story. This happened early in the morning in American Samoa, Samoa, and Tonga on September 29, 2009. So the Tonga Trench is an area of active subduction, which means that one tectonic plate is sliding beneath another one. Early that morning, there were two large earthquakes within like two or three minutes of each other. Both earthquakes registered as a 7.8 on the Richter scale. Together, they amounted to the impact of an 8.0 on the Richter scale. I saw some different numbers for that, actually. Noah had them listed as a little bit more powerful, the first one at 8.1 and then an 8.0 on the Richter scale. But either way, it would be the biggest earthquake of 2009. At the center of the earthquake, the shifting plates caused a 3-inch rise in the water, and the water then rushed towards American Samoa, Samoa, and Tonga. Only 15 minutes after the earthquake at 6.48 a.m., the tsunami hit the coast of American Samoa. The National Park Service had a visitor center right there at the opening of the harbor, and the people there recorded the tsunami waves as high as 26 feet which rushed inland 100 yards. And it was really terrible timing for them, the folks who worked there, because they started work at 7 a.m. So a lot of folks already at the office, or they were just arriving for work for the day. And they all had to scramble to higher ground to escape the sudden incoming water. So in some total, over 20 villages were destroyed across all three different places. I saw some reports saying that in the destroyed villages, it was 80 or 90% of everything was like completely annihilated. So 35 people were killed in American Samoa, 149 people were killed in Samoa, which is the biggest, and 9 people were killed in Tonga. In some areas, the tsunami measured as high as 72 feet. The city of Apia, the capital of Samoa, was one of the hardest hit areas. The whole city was evacuated to higher ground, but it happened so quickly that the casualties were still high. One hospital in Apia had 79 bodies brought to that hospital alone. All told, 193 people were killed in the tsunami, many of them children. Many areas also lost electrical infrastructure for a prolonged time, and tankers of water had to be brought in due to waterline disruptions. 
In American Samoa, President Obama had to declare a state of emergency. It could have been a lot worse, though. Apparently, for the past two years, so starting in 2007, Samoa had been doing a lot of training for the people who lived there about the speed at which a tsunami could arrive. So they knew it would take 15 minutes, so a lot of people, when they felt that earthquake, and I'm sure they got some kind of alert, they actually moved as quickly as they could rather than waiting, which is, those moments are crucial. And then school children in American Samoa had already been frequently practicing tsunami evacuations. After the tsunami hit Samoa, which was the hardest hit area, they also installed some island-wide sirens to alert residents about an incoming tsunami. And we heard some sirens kind of like this. We were watching some footage, like real footage of tsunamis. And the ones that we heard, at least, I don't know if it was in Samoa or somewhere else, it sounded like those like tornado kind of sirens to let you know that there might be a tornado in the area. So let's do a deep dive into these tsunami events. According to NOAA, which stands for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the definition of a tsunami is, quote, a wave in the ocean or in a lake that is created by a geologic event, most often caused by earthquakes and or landslides. These push the water upward, sideways, or downward to create the tsunami waves, end quote. These waves can reach as high as 100 feet and can travel as fast as 500 miles per hour. To put it in more literal terms, that's about a wall of water as big as a 10-story building crossing an entire ocean in less than a day. I can't even imagine a wall of water that huge, let alone something that goes as fast as a fucking plane. Anything over 10 feet and my mind just goes blank. To be fair though, they do slow down quite a bit once they reach the shallow water or land. Once you're in danger of being hit by one, it'll only be going about 20 to 30 miles an hour. But even then, it's still pretty bad at that speed. According to the WHO, or the World Health Organization, over 250,000 people were killed by tsunamis between 1998 and 2017. And over 90% of those deaths happened in a single tsunami in the Indian Ocean back in 2004. I want to dive into the details for that one later on in this episode. As you would probably expect, most people die from drowning, but you can also be severely injured or even killed by debris or collapsed structures above or below the water. And if you do manage to survive the initial tsunami impact, then you're at high risk of contracting a communicable disease. Yeah, I think that's one of those things that we forget about with tsunamis. It's not just a single huge wave that fucks shit up and leaves. There's a whole aftermath to deal with. Definitely. It's actually quite similar to the aftermath of a hurricane. So the diseases are a big part of the aftermath in this case. The CDC has whole lists of diseases that are associated with tsunamis as a secondary effect, including but not limited to airborne diseases, food and waterborne, animal-borne, mosquito-borne, so a lot of stuff that's related to animals and parasites, something like rabies, plague, hepatitis, cholera, and even malaria. Can you imagine getting bitten by a rabid animal in the middle of a tsunami? There is no way you'd be able to get to a medical facility because you have to get the immunoglobulin and your rabies shots then like 24 hours of being bitten. Yeah, and there's going to be a line of people who are going to do the same thing as you. Yeah, because it's not just that you have been bitten by an animal, but like people have been impaled on stuff. They're dying of cholera. It could be anything. And barring that kind of like extreme case, the infrastructure situation isn't going to be good. I talked about that 2009 tsunami. So in that case, you've got to think about the electrical grid going down, losing water, if you have gas to your house, you might have lost that and sewage. Basically, anything that travels around in a wire or a pipe is going to get screwed up for a while. Yeah, either because the pipes or wires themselves have gotten messed up, or even worse, the processing plants might have been taken out too. Yeah, it seems like it would take a long time if like the actual plants have gotten fucked up. Alright, so we've got a seismic event or a mudslide causing part of the earth to slough off. 
So the impact of this causes kind of a wave in the middle of the ocean, right? Yes, that's correct. We usually hear about tsunamis that have been created by an earthquake or even a volcano that creates a wave that ultimately crashes into the land. It's important to remember that NOAA said a geologic event, which encompasses more than just earthquakes. Tsunamis can also be caused by volcanic eruptions, asteroids, or anything else that shakes up the Earth. Are they all the same mechanism? So in my research, I found that most of the tsunamis that we hear about typically are driven by large earthquakes that happen underwater. So the big 2011 earthquake that hit Japan, as well as the one that hit Thailand in 2004, those were driven by earthquakes that happened under the water. Earthquakes, although they're the most major driver of tsunamis that we hear about, are not obviously the only ones that do it. Landslides, like I mentioned earlier, and volcanic activity can also cause earthquakes. <laughs> I totally bought it. I totally bought it. <laughs> so what I meant to say was that landslides and other geologic activities such as volcanoes can cause tsunamis, but the magnitude and frequency of tsunamis caused by landslides and volcanoes are typically less than those caused by earthquakes. So you're saying there could be a volcano that makes one, but it's not going to be as likely and it's not going to be as severe if it does happen. Yes. Now, I did read a case where an incredibly powerful tsunami was generated by a volcano that happened all the way back in 1883. Okay, And you might have heard of it. It's Krakatoa or Krakatau. And this was a catastrophic volcanic eruption. Guess how many people it killed? Well, there weren't as many people back then. It was in Indonesia. Okay, so I will make an educated guess. The biggest one was 230. The next biggest one was 125, so it has to be below that. So I'll say 10,000. No, it's triple that. It was 34,000 people that died. In the 1800s? Yeah. That's tons. These waves caused by the volcano were 135 feet high. Wait, seriously? 135 feet. That... That's almost an, I mean, that is unsurvivable if you're unlucky to be there. So what about, you may not know this and it's okay to say you don't know, but what about a volcano erupting causes the tsunami? Is it the lava or is it like the the seismic event of it? So before we go into how a volcano can cause a tsunami, I'd like to do a deeper dive into the two most common and fundamental mechanisms by which a tsunami can become formed. Now, the first one is going to be due to an underwater earthquake, and the second one is due to a landslide. Now, to explain how an earthquake contributes to a tsunami, let's talk about how an earthquake is formed first. Typically, what you're going to see is there's two tectonic plates that are moving alongside each other along some sort of fault. This could be on land or even underwater. And this will involve some sort of friction, right? It could be something that is sideways, upwards or downwards action. And just like any sort of friction, there's going to be some rumbling involved. Now, the rumbling on the scale of a geologic piece of rock is going to be incredibly, incredibly disruptive and full of energy. So if you think about an underwater earthquake, that energy is going to, of course, transfer to the billions and billions of gallons of water that are directly on top of those tectonic plates. As a result, the epicenter of the earthquake is going to be the same source of the epicenter of the tsunami itself. Okay. So as a consequence, the tsunami is going to radiate outwards from the epicenter, the origin of this underwater earthquake, and it's going to hit all the land masses, all of the coastlines, all of the islands that are within that radius in every single direction. And if you think about it intuitively, 
the closer you are to the epicenter of these underwater earthquakes or tsunamis, the more likely you are to sustain devastating damage. Because it doesn't have like distance and time to dissipate. Exactly. Because as, okay. as you increase distance from the origin of the tsunami, the energy of that tsunami decreases. If you recall earlier on in our conversation, the initial tsunami waves can travel as fast as 500 miles per hour laterally in open water, but as it hits landfall, you're going to see a huge reduction from 500 miles an hour down to maybe 20 to 30 miles an hour. So as a result, the energy decreases as well. So right? you'll get hit harder and faster. That makes sense. Okay, so that's earthquakes and yep. that kind of thing. Now, I still don't understand volcanoes. I'm going to get to that. So okay. if an earthquake can be considered the primary model for how a tsunami starts, then the landslide would be considered the secondary model. Now, keep in mind that 88% of all tsunamis are generated by earthquakes, and the rest of the 12% is split between atmospheric events, landslides, and volcanic activity. Now, as for landslides, the mechanism by which a landslide causes a tsunami is actually very conceptually simple. I'd like you to imagine something very familiar to you, such as a bathtub that's filled completely to the brim full of water. Okay. Now, let's say along the edge or the side of the bathtub, you've got something like a shampoo bottle. Okay. And imagine that that shampoo bottle somehow falls into the bathtub. That bathtub now has a volume equal to the volume of the shampoo bottle that's been added to it. So accordingly, since it's filled to the brim, an equal amount of water is going to be displaced outside of the bathtub. That mechanism is the exact same thing that happens when a landslide occurs. Something maybe along the edge of a body of water, like a cliffside, something falls into the body of water, displaces an equal amount of volume as whatever fell into the water, which causes that water to have to go somewhere else. You can't destroy matter. So now that something's inside the body of water, that causes a wave to radiate from where that thing entered the water. So that's why it's not as severe. Not necessarily, because what's interesting is that a lot of tsunamis, even if the earthquake itself is not strong enough to cause a real devastating tsunami, some earthquakes can actually generate landslides that make more devastating tsunamis than if the earthquake itself had caused the tsunami. That's terrible. Yeah. That's really awful. Now, to answer your original question about how a catastrophic volcano such as Krakatoa could end up causing such a large tsunami, you have to think about all of the characteristics that a volcano has in common with both earthquakes and landslides. Okay. For example, the very same tectonic plate activity that could cause an earthquake could very well cause a volcano as well. So all the same oscillations and shaking will end up transferring to water as well. And as far as landslides go, think about what a volcano ejects, right, when it erupts. Things like lava, things like debris shooting out of the earth, things even as extreme as pyroclastic flows, which I looked up and it's incredibly crazy, could go as fast as 100 kilometers an hour or about 60 miles an hour, all the way up to six or seven times that. So anywhere from 300 to 400 miles an hour, which is absolutely crazy. And of course, if you think about something that is so massive as a pyroclastic flow, going that fast, hitting water down a sloping volcano, of course, you're going to have a huge amount of energy hitting the body of water and transferring that as a huge wave that's going to hit something on the other side of that. 
So if you've been paying attention this whole time about the geographic distribution of all the places that are typically hit by tsunamis, such as Indonesia, such as Hawaii and Japan, for example, and all of the other island and coastal places. Yeah, like Samoa, Hawaii, all those places. Exactly. They happen around the Ring of Fire, which is an area in the Pacific Ocean where there's a lot of tectonic plate activity. So is the Ring of Fire literally like the Pacific Rim when you're thinking about like the outer landform outline of the Pacific. Is that what that means? Exactly. It is basically the outer edge of the Pacific Ocean, except at the bottom, which there isn't really like an edge that you can see. I guess Antarctica's down there, but I don't think there's much like activity in Antarctica. Also, just saying, nobody steal this idea because it's a great idea, but no one has ever done, as far as I know, a tsunami in Antarctica movie. That would be... That would check all of my boxes because I love I love disaster movies. I love like Arctic exploration. How fucking awesome would that be? That'd be so cool. What would be really cool since there's obviously a lot of ice there is if you had some really, really well done CGI effect where the water that comes in, it freezes in midair as it kind of is cresting over the land. That would be excellent. Somebody needs to call Roland Emmerich. Yeah, because that obviously would be so good. Because water from the ocean is obviously fucking water, but it's yeah. going to get so cold once it's airborne that it'll freeze. That would be really fucking cool. They should have had us on day after tomorrow's writers. <laughs> it would have been it would have been so much better. Yeah. All right, anyway, Ring of Fire. Yep. So, like you kind of said, Hawaii is particularly at risk because they're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, so aka the middle of the Ring of Fire. And if you look throughout history, Hawaii itself has been hit by a ton of tsunamis coming from all sorts of different directions. And by directions, I mean all sorts of different underwater earthquakes from within the Pacific Rim. So coming from North and South America, coming from Alaska, New Zealand, coming from North, South, East, West, whatever you think of, they're pretty much going to be hit by something. I mean, that kind of makes sense, though, because you, you were describing like the ripple effect. So like if you're in the middle, the chance of you being hit by ripples from any of the directions around you is pretty high. So if most of them are in the Pacific, I think I think it was like 80 percent. We said, what about my weird neurosis about tsunamis like in the Outer Banks? Like, are there tsunamis in the Atlantic? There are, but it's mostly centered around the Caribbean islands. So within the Outer Banks, we are not nearly as exposed to the same kinds of tsunamis and earthquakes as much as somebody who lives in the Caribbean is. And even in the Caribbean itself, most of the tsunamis I've read about have an average height of around three feet or less. So while it's not as extreme as like a hundred foot wave, it's still enough to lift cars and trucks and other dangerous things to possibly keep you under the water, to possibly hit you while you're unable to do something to get on your feet. So it's actually still pretty dangerous if you think about it. You could still die. Yeah, you could, but it's obviously much less dangerous compared to the ones that originate within the Pacific Rim. Okay, that makes me, I mean, 100 feet we would just die, 3 feet maybe, but that makes me feel a little better. So do you know, like, worldwide, how many tsunamis are going to happen in a given year? In terms of scope, a big Pacific-wide tsunami only really happens from 10 to 12 years on average, so about a decade. But between all of those big tsunami events, there's actually a ton of smaller tsunamis that happen all the time every single year. And when you're talking about the big boys, like the ones that rock Japan or the ones that rock the Caribbean, those catastrophic-level tsunamis only hit about once every six months on average, so about twice a year. 
And I guess that's just on average, right? Like it probably if there's worse years. Yeah, there could be probably like several years in a row where you have none. And it's entirely possible where you have one year with like four terrible tsunamis. Oh, that would suck. All right. So tsunamis are big. They're horrifying. They'll drown you or impale you on sharp objects or just give you like straight up cholera. What can we in this labyrinth of death do to keep ourselves alive? The most important thing you can do is know that one is about to hit you. If you're in an area prone to tsunamis, make sure you have your phone on you. Local authorities will probably use the alert system to let you know that one may be headed your way. So that alert system is probably going to sound a lot like an amber alert or a tornado warning on your phone. In the U.S., the National Weather Service works with the National Tsunami Hazard Mitigation Program to detect and warn when there could be a tsunami. One of the things that they monitor is seismic activity, which they can use to determine when and where a tsunami could hit. So if you're thinking about that, like Fen was saying, thinking about the impact of like where an earthquake is happening and the ripple effects out of that, that's how they predict when it would be happening in terms of speed and severity and where it would be going out in that ripple. They also monitor water levels, both in shallow areas and deep areas. You guys might see if you look this up online, something called DART, that's like the deep water kind of monitoring system. And they're doing that to see if there's a significant change apart from earthquakes that they could use to predict an incoming tsunami. So if they do think a tsunami is going to happen, they issue three different levels of alerts for them. So it's kind of like the hurricane and tornado warnings. The lowest level of an alert is a tsunami watch, meaning that one might hit the area later, but they might, you know, cancel it if it doesn't happen or upgrade it if it's going to be more imminent. The next level up is called a tsunami advisory, meaning that one could happen in the near future, or it could even be happening right now, and it's going to be dangerous. But the water levels themselves, themselves. <laughs> I can't. I don't. I don't have a twang. I don't know why that happens. <laughs> I was going to say, but the water levels themselves won't be insane. The worst level is a tsunami warning, and it means that it's a dangerous current, and that high water levels are either about to hit you imminently, or they're already hitting you. And in all three levels the watch, the advisory, and the warning, the tsunami could go on for hours or days. You have to remember that it's not just one wave. It's going to keep building and building and building water volume for ages. So if you don't have your phone on you or you don't get an alert for whatever reason, you might still sometimes see the water recede far, far back on the beach. And if you see this happening, it is never a good sign. Bad things are about to happen to you. You should get the fuck out. So I'm assuming that if you're an observant person and you notice that the shoreline is receding really far out towards the ocean where it shouldn't be, then it might be a pretty good sign to get the fuck out of there and head for the hills or head for the rooftop, something like that, where you're at an elevated position, right? Yeah, you're going to want to head upwards and or inland. If you've been warned by authorities that an impending tsunami is going to happen or you've seen the water recede at the beach, you want to try to either go a whole mile inland, which should keep you safe in most cases, or go up as high as you can go. Now, a note on going up high, apparently a lot of buildings, even tall ones that you would expect to be like structurally sound, can't withstand the impact of a tsunami. So it needs to be like reinforced concrete and all that stuff for the building to actually survive the impact. If you can't get a mile inland for whatever reason, like you see it coming, you can't get anywhere, it's fucking flat land, I would personally get as high as I could if you don't have any other options, but it's not recommended by NOAA as an ideal evacuation route if you have time. So if you live somewhere where tsunamis can happen, check with your local authorities for what the guidelines are for your area specifically, like your buildings, the land, all that stuff, evacuation routes, and make sure you have a disaster supply kit for your family, including your pets. 
Make sure you have a plan for yourself, family, and the pets. Remember, if you can't survive some horrible catastrophe, your pets also cannot survive and you have to take care of them. So if you're visiting somewhere, also check to see with your hotel what the evacuation plan is. All right, so now you see the tsunami. Like we said, you might see a wall of water or it might just look like a really, really, really fast flood. The tsunami waves and the dangerous currents that come with them, like we said, could last for hours or days. So if you are somewhere safe, just stay put wherever you are until you've been told that it's safe to leave. And if you've gotten out, stay out. And also as a reminder, as little as six inches of water, which is only half a foot, could knock an adult over. And like we also mentioned earlier, you could also get cholera or some other horrible flesh-eating bacteria disease from the water itself. So try to remove yourself from an area from which you might get your feet or legs wet. Yeah, I mean, I didn't actually read about this anywhere, but I would assume if you're in a city that's been hit by like the entire tsunami floodwater thing, the sewage is going to be overrun because it's going to go in the storm drains. Like, it's got to be bad. Absolutely. There's going to be a lot of cases where there's unsanitary conditions because so much of that sewage and wastewater is just going to come back out. I can't imagine. And like the cars and stuff, there's going to be like oil. Yeah, it's not going to be good to be in the water if you can avoid it. Mm -hmm. So here's a question. What about if you're on a boat already? Do you think you're supposed to head out to sea? I think it depends on where you are. If you're right at the coastline, I wouldn't go for a boat. But if you're already out kind of way in the ocean, then we actually saw some found footage of a tsunami that hit Japan. And it was actually what we think is a Coast Guard boat. That was that was really stressful to watch because maybe just because we didn't have like a three dimensional effect on it, but it looked like it was going to like crest on them. That was really stressful to watch. Yeah, it looked like a first person perspective of a boat that was going on a roller coaster that was made out of water. That's what I was picturing because they like they were going like way the fuck up this wave. And then like when they were at the top, we obviously couldn't see from the camera angle, but it was just like suddenly nothing under them. Yeah, it was definitely a surreal moment to see. And at that point, I wasn't sure that they were going to make it. But to answer your original question, It definitely depends on where you are and where the tsunami is actually coming from. If it started nearby and you're not at sea already, then you need to just get the fuck out of there, whether it's by car or on foot. If you even have the resources to, get in a plane. (laughs) I mean, yes, if you are on a runway and you have the option, you should definitely take the plane. Most places that I've seen have actually said, including like I think Noah and maybe some other resources have said that don't even waste time with other stuff. If you can just hoof it out of there, like literally just on your own two feet, Just do that. You really just want to get out of there as soon as you can. Absolutely. If it's not a locally generated tsunami, as in if the earthquake event or the landslide or the volcanic activity is not close to you, then you might have time to get your boat out to sea and save yourself. Yeah. One thing I did see, though, is one, check with the harbor master. And two, you have to be really careful with the timing because if everyone who has a boat in that marina or harbor or whatever says, oh, we have to get out of there because it's going to hit us in two hours or three hours, there's going to be a traffic jam of boats. And then worst case scenario, you're still in that traffic jam. You haven't gotten out far enough. And now you're trapped on a boat in the harbor when the tsunami hits you is not going to be good. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say that if you're already out at sea in the middle of what's going to be a tsunami or a set of tsunami waves, just stay out there because it's going to be way safer out there despite the roller coaster of waves than you would be if you were by the coast. When we're saying like go out to sea, we mean like deep sea, like 100 meters deep is what I read online to say like, hey, it's deep enough. The waves aren't going to impact you as much out here. All right. So now this is my favorite part. I want to talk about tsunamis and movies. And we're bringing movies back up again. I know we've talked about it in previous episodes, but 
At least for us, we're big movie people. And so when we see a lot of these things like, oh, there's a serial killer chasing you in the outback or, oh, there's a tsunami, we're going to go straight to like the movie references for it. So I think it's good to kind of talk through the movies and the scenarios that you've seen and just like think about how they could impact you in real life. So the first one I want to talk about is one of my all-time favorite movies, even though I know it's not a great movie. It is absolutely one of my favorites, and that is San Andreas. We saw this movie, I think we literally saw this movie three times in theaters. Am I lying about that? That's real, right? We saw it together once, and then we saw it with your family. We did? Yeah. Okay, so we only saw it twice. Well, we might have seen it a third time. I I think we went back and saw it a third time. I'm 99% sure because we were out, we had dinner, we went out and we saw the movie and I got a grown-up milkshake. I remember. Um, I love San Andreas. I can't believe we saw San Andreas three times in theaters and John Wick only once. That breaks my heart, but that's okay. So San Andreas, I went back, I didn't rewatch the whole movie, I need to, but San Andreas has basically the idea, if you haven't seen the movie, is there's a big fault line that's, you know, overdue to happen. It's going to be a big earthquake. And the movie is starring The Rock, and it basically is the earthquake and the tsunami that hits, and it's just a big disaster movie. So I read that apparently San Andreas, that fault itself, can't actually cause a big tsunami like you saw in the movie. Like, it's not even possible. It could cause, like, smaller local tsunamis, but that one itself couldn't do it. The Cascadia Fault, which is up north, could do it and could create a large tsunami, but the movie scenario specifically is not possible. Did you ever find out the reason why it couldn't start a big one? No, honestly, I struggled greatly with understanding the plate tectonics thing. And so I saw that and just accepted it as fact. But in the scene with the tsunami, they're like the rock. He's there with, I think it's his ex-wife in the movie. So they're like going back to port. They see the water receding. They're like, oh shit, it's going to be a tsunami. So they turn their little speedboat around and they're racing towards this wall of water, which they would definitely die. But there's like zipping past all these other boats. And they get up to the top of the wave and they're right about to go over. And then out of nowhere comes a giant ass cargo ship is the butt of the cargo ship. So it's got like the little spinny rotating blades and they like manage to get under that. And it like takes the roof of their speedboat off. And then they're driving past and the cargo boat starts like dumping cargo things on them. It was a crazy, crazy movie. Oh my gosh. It's one of my favorites. I absolutely love it. I want to talk about a movie that is completely different in tone. And also completely different with my experience with it. So this is a movie called The Wave. And I think it is, it's some kind of a Nordic movie. I'm going to look it up right now. So I just looked it up because I can't, I couldn't remember. So it is a Norwegian movie. It's based on either something that really happened or like a real scenario that could really happen scientifically on this little tiny village nestled at these foothills of these mountains. They're worried about a giant landslide coming and the landslide would cause like a lake tsunami. So when I read about this, I saw a little blurb for this movie. I was so excited because I love disaster movies. And I was like, sweet, it's like a Norwegian movie. It's going to be like this cool little village and stuff. I have tried to watch this movie. I shit you not 10 times. It is so slow. Is this found footage? No, it's not. It's like a dramatization with like scientists and shit. And I was always so excited to like watch this movie. I'm like, this is going to be great. I'm going to get through it this time to the disaster. And I can't do it. I cannot slog my way through this movie. It's just so fucking slow. I'm just, maybe I'm just too fucking stupid. I can't do it. Speaking of which, as an aside, there's a book, I have a problem with this. There's like a hook that I'm interested in where it's like, oh, this movie has a great tsunami. That's awesome. I want to watch it. I read this book. It was about Admiral Byrd who like explored Antarctica by himself. And then he almost dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. I read like 300 fucking pages of this guy's diary of him like checking like 
meteorological instruments waiting for him to start dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. And he, it was like the last 10 fucking pages. I was like, are you kidding me? This movie is the equivalent of that Admiral Byrd book. It's the same fucking thing where it's like scientific stuff happening for 10,000 years and then an exciting disaster happens. So I finally skipped ahead on YouTube and I watched the disaster in the wave. And it was actually one of the most epic things I've ever seen. You, you have not seen this yet. I need to show it to you after this. I'm hoping it's pretty realistic. People have said the whole scenario in this movie is realistic. So the idea is you see kind of like the landslide and you see like this huge cascading wave of water. People are running. There's gridlock with the cars. And you see some people who are running to get away and they actually get into a car because they know the water is going to hit them. And I think it's actually not a terrible idea because it might protect them from some of the debris that's running around. I don't actually know what happens to them because I've only watched the five minute clip of the movie. And I think that was actually a really good portrayal. All right. I think that's all we've got tsunamis this week then. Was that a sentence? What? What do you mean? You said, I think that's all we've got tsunamis this week then. I'm sorry. I mean, I think that's all we have this week on the episode about tsunamis. It is very late. It is currently one in the morning. All right. So that's all we've got. Check out our website. It's in the labyrinth of death.com. <laughs> sorry, I just touched death. I wrote, in the labyrinth of detox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm getting giddy. The website is in the labyrinth of death.com. You can also find us on Instagram at in the labyrinth of death. So, you know, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a review if you get a chance and tell your friends if you like us. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening in for this week. Tune in next week for a new episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime... Send us your near misses with death to in the labyrinth of death at gmail.com. See y'all next week. <laughs>